You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. It feels like a lot of time and yet no time at all has passed since I last did this. Those summer hours have started at my job, so I do have a little bit more free time on Fridays. But yeah, this last week I went on some day trips. I went on an urban hike around Hollywood, went to a baseball game and a work thing and a museum. And God, I hope this weekend's more mellow yet, though I do know this is by my own design. So, you know, booked and blessed is a tiresome lifestyle. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got The Boogeyman and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. The Boogeyman was okay. It's very similar to dozens of other films in this genre. Doesn't really do anything special to elevate that kind of film other than disproportionately well-written dialogue and characters. That was actually quite good. I was it was almost like the the story was so average, but like the relationship with the characters was so well done. It was kind of distracting in a weird way. But other than that, pretty basic movie. Not going to blow your mind. Not going to make you feel like you wasted a ton of time. It's only 90 minutes. It was fine. And then Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse was just as incredible, gorgeous, and cool as the first one had been. It is super long. That is my one complaint. It is almost two and a half hours in length. But man, what a ride you go on in that two and a half-ish hours. I don't want to spoil anything, but the ending, it made you feel some things. <laughs> You'll see if if you go see it. So now let's get on to the stuff because there are no strike updates other than the fact that the DGA is about to enter the final week of scheduled negotiations. So no s- vote has been called yet, but the fact that negotiations are kind of getting towards the end, not always the greatest sign ever, but no vote's been called. So it won't be a quick thing if that does end up happening. It might take them a couple weeks if they do go on strike. God willing, they won't because at my job on Thursday, it was K-pop day on on the uh, picket line for the writers and the amount of honking almost made me go insane. So again, I'm all in support of getting what you think you're owed. That's we need more of that, especially in American society. But uh, it's hard. On, it's hard on my ears and my sanity, but I'll get over it. This month, we're taking a look at four of the most famous double acts that Hollywood has ever seen. This week, we meet two individuals from two different worlds who managed to live in two different film worlds as well. The silence and the talkies. And unlike so many partnerships in Hollywood, these two remained close collaborators for the entirety of their careers. I'm talking, of course, about Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. (laughs) 
Arthur Stanley Jefferson was born into a theatrical family on June 16, 1890, in Lancashire, England. His father was a theater owner and just general multi-hyphenate in that field, and his mother was an actress. In 1905, the family moved to Glasgow, Scotland, to be closer to one of their theaters. The man who would be better known the world over as Stan Laurel, I'm just going to call him Laurel throughout for everyone's sanity and because we're dealing with two people, lack of confusion, made his stage debut one month shy of his 16th birthday. In an act of classic nepotism, his father secured Laurel a job with the juvenile theatrical company Levy and Cardwell, which specialized in Christmas pantomimes. For the 96% of you not in the UK, a panto is a form of like musical family entertainment. By 1909, Laurel was working for theater guru and comedy star maker Fred Carno as a supporting actor and would become none other than Charlie Chaplin's understudy. It would be here that Laurel would begin polishing an act he'd spend nearly half a century perfecting. In 1910, Laurel left England with the Fred Carnot troupe to tour the United States. Once there, on the 21-month tour, Laurel decided this wouldn't be a temporary trip, but rather a permanent one. For several years, Laurel toured the theater circuit in America, teaming up with fellow former Carnot actors along the way. The troupe broke up in about 1914. Between stage acts, Laurel began getting film work as his notoriety grew in the musical hall circuit, or I guess since he's in the U.S., it'd be the vaudeville circuit. I was using a bunch of British-produced content for this episode for sources, so they'd call it musical. In the U.S., we call it vaudeville. In 1917, Laurel teamed up with Mae Dahlberg for stage and film, which was convenient as they were also living as common-law husband and wife. That same year, Laurel had made his film debut with Dahlberg in Nuts in May. While working with May for as much as $75 a week, he began using the name Stan Laurel and eventually changed his name legally in 1931. He had changed his name at Dahlberg's suggestion as Stan Jefferson, as he'd been known by this point, had 13 letters in it and was therefore unlucky. As Laurel Starr rose above his partners, he would have to quit performing on stage in 1924 because he was too busy. Dahlberg would begin demanding roles in his films, but her volatile personality didn't exactly make her a joy to work with, and audiences didn't like her, so that was a pretty hard sell. On top of that, the two were constantly fighting on set, which of course, while making a hostile work environment, was also delaying filming. And as we all know, time is money. Recognizing Laurel's potential and just being completely over it, independent producer Joe Rock paid her to leave Laurel and to return to her native Australia, which she accepted in 1925. The ship's purser was given her money, and he was told that May was not to receive her payment until the ship was at least one day out at sea. Free of distractions at last, Laurel's next 12 films with Rock finished ahead of schedule. When his contract with Rock was completed, also in 1925, Laurel joined the Hal Roach Film Studio as a director and writer. From May 1925 to September 1926, he received credit in at least 22 films. It was difficult for other creatives to write for him, as by this point, American audiences knew Laurel as either a quote-unquote nutty burglar or as a Charlie Chaplin imitator, and that was proving to be quite limiting. In all, Laurel appeared in over 50 films for various producers before teaming up with Oliver Hardy. 
Norville Hardy was born in Georgia on January 18, 1892. His father had been a Confederate soldier, and his mother ran a hotel, so the boy spent his formative years people-watching in the lobby. He would make up stories for them and copy their mannerisms. Later on, he would use these observations to build his on-screen persona. By his late teens, Hardy was a popular stage singer, and he even operated a movie house which was partially financed by his mother. Having had fallen in love with film comedies, he decided to get in on the production of them instead of just running a theater. So, in 1913, he got a job with Lubin Motion Pictures in Jacksonville, Florida. He started out working as a grip, schlepping lights, props, and other duties, all the while learning how to be a script clerk. If I'm not mistaken, this is an outdated term for a script supervisor who was in charge of logging takes and maintaining continuity between shots. There wasn't easily findable to confirm, but I'm fairly certain that's what it was. When it came time to pick a stage name, he continued using his father's first name, which he'd gone by since he was a teenager, calling himself Oliver Norville Hardy. He was also known as Babe early on in his career, which originated from an Italian barber in Florida who would rub Hardy's face with talcum powder after a shave and say, that's nice, a baby. When other actors in the company heard about this, they decided to kind of low-key make fun of it and imitate it, which led to Hardy being billed as Babe Hardy in his early films. It was also a nickname throughout his life. It was around this time that Hardy married his first wife, Madeline Salishin, and in 1914, Hardy was also in his first film, Outwitting Dad. Between 1914 and 1917, Hardy was in 177 shorts for the Vin Comedy Company. Exhibiting versatility and playing all manner of characters, unlike his future partner, Hardy was in high demand for roles as a supporting actor, comic villain, or just right-hand man. Probably also didn't hurt that Florida had a far smaller talent pool to pull from. In 1917, following the collapse of the Florida film industry, Hardy and his wife moved to California to seek new opportunities, and the two separated shortly thereafter. After several years of working as a gigging actor, meaning he didn't have a long-term contract with the studio, Hardy would eventually secure one with Hal Roach in 1924. Hardy was already working for Roach when he also hired Laurel, who he had seen in vaudeville. Laurel had very light blue eyes, and Roach soon discovered that, due to the technology of film at the time, that Laurel's eyes wouldn't photograph properly. Back then, with this early film stock, blue photographed as white. This problem was incredibly apparent long before Hal had hired him. Before working for Roach, Laurel and Hardy had made a film together, though for both of them it was just another gig and neither of them remembered the other afterward. The film was 1921's The Lucky Dog, and for the production of that film there was an attempt made to compensate for Laurel's very light eye problem by just applying heavy makeup around his eyes. He kind of ends up looking like a 2000s teenage goth's first attempt at eyeliner. It's like it's like baby Batman. It's very, very hard lines around the eyes. I don't know what they were trying to go for, but I'm willing to bet it wasn't that. There weren't a lot of close-ups back then, so maybe they thought like outlining the eyes would help. Be like, here's where the eyes are supposed to be, but it it just looks manic instead. 
So with acting work out of the question for the first, like, not too long after he started working there, Roach just had Laurel work as a writer and director instead. Laurel even directed Hardy in several shorts around this time, and when new film stock came out, they retested Laurel, and his eyes no longer looked super creepy on film. It just became more sensitive to other colors, even though it was a black and white. So now he doesn't look like a demon from hell. Laurel began appearing in his own series of comedies as an audacious young man who always seems to find himself in precarious situations. It's giving like low-key Chaplin. And by 1926, those had made him a star in his own right. Laurel and Hardy briefly appeared together in a few shorts, and after seeing how well they played off each other, they were put together in another, this time playing off of each other directly, and that film was 1927's Second Hundred Years. Their teaming had reportedly been suggested by Leo McCary, who ended up being their supervising director from 1927 to 1930. During that period, McCary and Laurel jointly came up with the trio's comedy and shooting style. When Laurel and Hardy would have to adjust their style for the talking films, it would be McCary who would be the one who got them to like slow down their more frenetic movements to a more natural pace better suited to a world with dialogue. The formula worked so well that Laurel and Hardy played the exact same characters which were versions of themselves for the next 30 years. How Roach would be considered the most important person in the development of Laurel and Hardy's film careers, other than, of course, the two comedians themselves. Laurel and Hardy would work with Roach for nearly 20 years. But them coming together, it was just cosmic coincidence. No love at first sight nonsense. Just a pair of two guys from very different worlds that found each other as they grew as performers. Back then, comedy teams were usually comprised of a straight man and a funny man. But of course, in the case of Laurel and Hardy, both men were comedians and had the ability to play either. Hardy, being the bigger man of the two, would most often play the more boisterous one and was kind of the plan maker, the mastermind type character, while the slight Laurel's on-screen persona was typically quite meek and simple-minded. Both of them were kind of like, you know, below average intelligence as far as the characters were considered. Not in real life, obviously, they're both very smart guys. But in the films, they were kind of like, they were both kind of like simpletons with big dreams. Their first released film purposely linking the two as a comedic duo was 1927's Do Detectives Think, which was the first film to have the duo in their classic attires, which was basically, you know, kind of like suits and the hats. Their first official film as a build duo was Putting Pants on Philip, in which Laurel plays a Scottish man who just got to the United States wearing a kilt. And a lot of weird things happen to him because he's wearing this kilt. His uncle, played by Hardy, tries to get him to wear pants. Although Roach employed writers and directors on the Laurel and Hardy films, Laurel often rewrote entire sequences and scripts. He also encouraged the cast and crew to improvise, then meticulously reviewed the footage during editing. By 1929, Laurel was the pair's head writer. Laurel eventually became so involved in their film's productions that many film historians actually consider Laurel to be an uncredited director on many of them. He ran the Laurel and Hardy set no matter who was in the director's chair, but never acted like a diva or like fought with a director. The director was just basically there to sit in a chair and let Laurel do his thing, which really calls into question why they just didn't let Laurel be the director, as he'd obviously had the experience. I wasn't I couldn't find a good reason as to why that happened. But of course, this was during the Hollywood era of more money than sense. So who can say they're like, we need someone to yell action and cut. So this man will sit in this chair and do that. Ta-da, director. 
Of all their silent pictures, their 1929 film Big Business is by far the most critically acclaimed. Laurel and Hardy are Christmas tree salesmen who are drawn into a classic tit-for-tat format battle with another character that eventually causes the destruction of the other man's house and also the destruction of Laurel and Hardy's car. It is believed by some that uh, this tit-for-tat thing, comedy format, was actually invented by Laurel and Hardy. And all of these films they were making around this time, they were called two-reelers, which were about 20 minutes in length. In 1929, the silent era of film was coming to an end, and many silent film actors would fail to make the transition to the talkies for a variety of reasons. Some chose to just leave the profession. They thought sound would inhibit their performances and just opted to retire. Others were forced to because their voices were considered inadequate or didn't look like their faces or just bad to listen to for the new medium. Luckily for our heroes this week, the addition of spoken dialogue only amplified Laurel and Hardy's performances. They both came from pretty hefty theatrical backgrounds in one form or another and therefore knew how to use their voices to great effect. Their films continued to feature the heavy visual comedy that had made audiences fall in love with them, in addition to their witty repartees. Their first sound film, Unaccustomed As We Are from 1929, was considered a seamless transition to the medium. In the opening scene, Laurel and Hardy begin by speaking in a slow and self-conscious manner making fun of the early talking actors who were anxious about speaking too quickly and not being understood. Can't relate. This would also become a routine they would use regularly even after sound became standard. Their short film, The Music Box, from 1932, in which the two play delivery men trying to get a piano up a huge flight of stairs, won an Oscar for Best Life Action Short Subject and remains one of the duo's most widely known films, arguably probably their best known. The stairs still exist in Silver Lake to this day, though there's a lot more buildings around them than there was in that short. Laurel and Hardy by this point had become famous the world over, so much so that when they went on a tour of the United States in 1932, they were shocked to discover just how famous they actually were. Laurel always had his nose in the editing room or making the next thing, and Hardy liked to go golf and be chill with his buddies and had a social life outside of making films, so it just... They just weren't in their heads about it. They were just doing their things. So, you know, there was a surprise to them that they were like super duper famous. And then when they went to Europe, the same thing happened again. They were mobbed at the train stations because they were so popular. Hal Roach had catered to international audiences by filming many of their early talkies in other languages, which had been a very smart thing to do, it turned out. Laurel and Hardy had spoke their dialogue phonetically in Spanish, Italian, French, and or German. The plots remained similar to the English versions, although the supporting actors were often changed out to people who were actually fluent in that language. This way, they kept the international appeal they'd garnered as silent film stars that was lost to many once the Tower of Babel world of sound pictures entered, well, the picture. Soon, Laurel and Hardy were also finding themselves making full-length features, and like their initial pairing, it kind of happened on accident. Roach had some sets he'd wanted to use for the next Laurel and Hardy film down the road at MGM, which had been built for a prison drama film. MGM said that if they were going to let Roach use those sets, then Laurel and Hardy would have to do a picture for them in exchange. Roach said no to that, so he built his own prison set, which was a very expensive thing to do for a two-reeler, which is again about 20 minutes in length, 
So this price tag led to Roach adding four more reels to the feature to make it a feature film, which would hopefully make more money and appeal to a larger audience. The film was 1931's Pardon Us, and the experiment was considered to be a success. Laurel and Hardy continued to make features along with their short subjects until about 1935, after which they converted to features exclusively as shorts were becoming less and less popular. The duo's most famous feature is probably Sons of the Desert from 1933. I watched it on Friday, I'd never seen it before, and I was obsessed. The two play submissive husbands who want to attend a convention held by the Sons of the Desert Fraternal Lodge. They tell their wives that... Oliver needs an ocean voyage to Honolulu to recover from a nervous breakdown, but instead he and Stan sneak off to the convention in Chicago. When they return home, they're first unaware that the Honolulu-bound ship they were supposed to be aboard is sinking, and the wives confront their husbands when they get home, but not before the two chaotically try to cover up their lies. What really struck me about this film was that the women, the two wives, had their own pretty solidly fleshed out storyline. Yes, they were still playing, quote unquote, the henpecking wives, but they had a nuance at a level that wasn't really around back then, especially in comedy led by men. The two also had their own comedic bits without Laurel and Hardy in the scene, which was honestly pretty cool to see in like a 90 year old film because it's very, very rare. One of their next films was Babes in Toyland from 1934, which remained an American television staple during the Christmas season for decades. The film also caused a lot of conflict between Roach and Laurel. Roach had written a treatment for the project, which Laurel reportedly hated and refused to use. Roach tried to argue, but Laurel stuck to his guns. Roach was pissed, but allowed Laurel to make the film his way. The rift damaged Roach and Laurel's relationship to the point that Roach said that after Toyland, he did not want to produce any more for Laurel and Hardy. Although their association continued for another six years or so, Roach no longer took an active hand in any Laurel and Hardy films. Roach would say in interviews later on that he strongly disliked the film. It also appeared that the team would split permanently in 1938. Roach had become dissatisfied with his distribution agreement with MGM and had begun releasing his films through United Artists instead. Roach still owed MGM one last feature, so he had Laurel and Hardy make the comedy Blockheads, which came coupled with the announcement that it would be the last Laurel and Hardy film. Laurel's contract with Roach had expired and Roach did not renew it because, well, babes in Toyland. Hardy's contract, however, was still in effect, and Roach had Hardy star solo in the antebellum comedy Zenobia from 1939, with another actor filling in as his comedic partner. This, of course, fueled rumors that Laurel and Hardy had split up badly, which couldn't have been farther from the truth. After Zenobia, Laurel rejoined Hardy and the team signed with independent producer Boris Moros for the comedy feature The Flying Deuces from 1939. Hoping for greater artistic freedom, Laurel and Hardy split with Roach for Good in 1940 and signed with 20th Century Fox in 1941 and later MGM in 1942. However, their working conditions were now completely different than what they'd had been with Roach. They were now just hired actors. They were put on the studio's B-film unit, and they were not initially allowed to contribute to the scripts or to improvise as they had always done. When their new films did prove popular, though, the studio did allow them more input, and they starred in eight feature films by the end of 1944. These films, while far from their best work, were still financially quite successful. 
The Fox films were so profitable that the studio kept making Laurel and Hardy comedies, even after it discontinued its other B-films. After a long break, 1947 saw their first European tour since 1932. A film based on the characters of Robin Hood was planned to shoot during this tour, but this project never materialized. In 1950-1951, Laurel and Hardy made their final feature-length film together, which was Atoll K. The project was a French-Italian co-production that was plagued by problems caused by language barriers, production issues, and Laurel and Hardy's mounting health problems. When Laurel had received the script's initial draft, he felt its heavy political content overshadowed the comedy, so he rewrote it with another writer friend. He also hired a different director to direct the Laurel and Hardy scenes of the picture. During filming, Hardy developed an irregular heartbeat, while Laurel experienced painful prostate complications that caused his already frail frame to drop to 114 pounds. Critics were unhappy with the film in general, they didn't like the storyline, they didn't like the English dubbing, and many commented on Laurel's frail, sickly appearance because he was frail and sick. Because the film was not commercially successful on its first release, it brought an end to Laurel and Hardy's film careers, at least as a duo. After Atoll K wrapped in April 1951, Laurel and Hardy returned to America and used the remainder of the year to deal with their health issues. A year later, the duo would return to the stage, performing a short Laurel written sketch called A Spot of Trouble. On May 17, 1954, Laurel and Hardy made their last live stage performance in Plymouth in the UK at the Palace Theatre. On December 1, 1954, they made their only American television appearance when they were interviewed on the television program This Is Your Life, though they didn't know it at the time. The two had been lured to the Knickerbocker Hotel in Hollywood under the pretense of a business meeting with a producer, but the doors opened to their suite and suddenly the two were on television. The appearance was so popular and got so many good reviews and hyped up audiences so much that Laurel and Hardy began negotiating with Hal Roach Jr. to do a series of colored TV specials that were planned on being called Laurel and Hardy's Fabulous Fables. Unfortunately, this never happened as the aging comedians continued to suffer declining health. In 1955, Laurel and Hardy made their final public appearance together while taking part in This Is Music Hall, a BBC television program. Laurel and Hardy provided a filmed insert where they reminisced about their friends from the British variety scene. In 1956, while following his doctor's orders to improve his health due to the heart condition, Hardy lost over 100 pounds, which he'd always wanted to do, but felt he needed to stay big in order to keep working. Unfortunately, he also suffered several strokes, causing reduced mobility, speech, and lucidity. Oliver Hardy passed away from complications from a stroke on August 7, 1957. He was laid to rest at Pierce Brothers Valhalla Memorial Park in North Hollywood, California. Following his death, scenes from Laurel and Hardy's early films were shown once again in theaters. For the remaining eight years of his life, Stan Laurel refused to perform in any way, as he'd been devastated by his former partner's death. In 1960, Laurel was given a special Academy Award for his contributions to the art of film comedy, but he was unable to attend the ceremony due to poor health. He'd also suffered at least one stroke by this point. 
Late in life, he would welcome visitors from the new generation of comedians and celebrities to his modest Santa Monica apartment. Unlike Hardy, Laurel was lucky enough to live long enough to see the duo's work rediscovered through television and classic film revivals. Stan Laurel passed away on February 23rd, 1965 in Santa Monica and is buried at Forest Lawn, Hollywood Hills near Burbank, California. Laurel and Hardy's resting places are less than five miles from each other. Nearly all of the Laurel and Hardy films have survived and are still in regular circulation. Only three of their 107 films are considered lost or have not been seen in complete form since the 1930s. They are the silent film Hats Off from 1927, which has vanished completely. The first half of Now I'll Tell One from 1927 is lost, but the second half does exist, but is yet to have been released publicly in any form. Then there's The Battle of the Century, also from 1927, which after years of obscurity is now almost complete, but there are a few minutes still missing. Another, though they didn't star in this film, was the 1930 operatic technicolor musical The Rogue Song. Laurel and Hardy appeared as comedic relief in about 10 sequences, but only one still exists. The complete soundtrack has survived, however. So lots of Laurel and Hardy to be enjoyed now. Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy were comedic legends whose work inspires up-and-coming comedians to this day. Their comedies, while simple, are a welcome form of escapism in a world so often fraught with darkness. Lucky for us, there are hours upon hours of the two men's comedy to keep us laughing. When I ask you to have a drink, you refuse. Everything is just going to be fine. Soda, soda, soda. And what will you have, Stan? Soda. Pardon me. Don't you understand we've only got 15 cents? Now when I ask you to have a drink, you refuse. Do you understand? Soda, soda. Soda. And what will you have, Stan? Soda. Just a moment, please. Pardon me. Once more. Can't you grasp the situation? You must refuse. But you keep asking me. I'm only putting it on for the girls. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterboxed account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee. I forgot to have coffee again today because I slept in finally because I have not been sleeping well lately. Um, so I didn't feel like I needed it today, which was nice. Um, but normally I need much of it. I've also got merch. Check out the link in the show notes. Next week, we look at the lives of Universal's dynamic duo, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Hey.